G'day everyone. It's nice to be here at 6.30. Uh, I send greetings from 4.30. They didn't officially send the greetings, but on their behalf, they send their greetings. They're actually off enjoying dinner at the moment, which is our way at 4.30, so I'm a little bit hungry this evening. Uh, I'll catch dinner later on, though. That'll be okay. Uh, why don't I pray for us, and we'll get into this great little passage from John's Gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the historicity of it, and we thank you that it points us to trust in Jesus. Help us tonight not to go away uh, ignoring him, but help us to believe in him and put all of our hope in this new life that he offers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a great week to rejoice, hasn't it? It's been a great week to rejoice because Croatia beat England. Hooray! Who's rejoicing? There's a few people rejoicing at that. I, I love the fact that England won't get to go into another World Cup final. I know it makes me sound like I'm really an, an angry old man or something, but it's been great my whole life that they haven't made the World Cup final. Excellent. May it continue long. But that's not actually the rejoicing that we've been doing all this week. Uh, this week, it's been those 12 boys, the Thai boys, right, that came out of the cave. Who's been following along, sort of avidly listening to the news yeah, lots of us, right? We've been watching it. Uh, the fact that they were rescued was amazing. They came out of the cave. Incredible. Uh, Hollywood is talking already, major motion picture. Not surprising, looking for an opportunity, right? Uh, FIFA is offering tickets to the World Cup to them. Great, they can't use them, they're in hospital, but there you go, well done FIFA. And, and all the news coverage, well, it's sort of waiting with bated breath there for a little while. Will it be a good news story? Will it be a bad news story? We didn't know. And then Wednesday morning, it was like a sigh of relief. Phew, it's a good news story. And, and it blanketed all of the news during the week. I wonder if you can imagine how it was to be those boys. Imagine in a cave for days and days and days, not knowing if anyone would come. Darkness, alone, hungry, thirsty just contemplating where your life will go. Can you imagine the sort of endless feelings of, oh no, and trying to find comfort, and then getting new life? Those boys came out and they started life all over again. It was, it was like a resurrection story. It's a great story for the week that we're looking at Lazarus. They have a new life and nothing will be the same again for those boys. But I have to say, for all the joy in that... I was a little bit sad for the one man that died. Could you spare a thought for that man? A few nods of heads there. You have to spare a thought for him, right? He gave his life so that the rest of us could be so excited that the Thai boys got out. But that family, did they think it was a good trade? I mean, right now, as they sit in their home, do they think losing dad, losing an uncle, losing whoever it was in the family, was that a good trade for the rest of those families? He's been called a hero, but, but is it worth it? I reckon there's this strange economy of death and life that comes up whenever a big event happens, and we see it in this one again, where we think, well, a middle-aged man died so that 12 young boys can live. Fair trade, right? It seems like a fair trade. That's what our society would say. Uh, in fact, we do this all the time. Uh, if someone dies young, we say it's a tragedy, and the church will be full at the funeral, and people will be there, and it, and it is a sad tragedy. But if someone dies uh, elderly, 
You know, we say, oh, you lived a ripe old age, that's, that's great. You've had a good innings, that, that's great. And people kind of wander away from the funeral, the handful that turned up in the first place, and we say, well, that's good for them. We have this kind of economy of death in our lives. I wonder if you've thought about your own economy of life and death. If you're in the cave, if you're the one lost down in the cave, what should people do to save you? How many people should come in? How many should lose their life to save you? Now, I don't want to embarrass you because maybe you think, well, my life's more important than other people's lives, so just send them in. Like, I, I really want to be saved. Because we all do, don't we? We kind of think that my life is more important. But at what point? 10 people? 20? How many people would have to sort of pass away, give their lives before you'd say, no, stop. I'm prepared to die. This is the price of my life. Well, today, we think about what, what price for a second chance at life. Lazarus got a second chance at life. And we're all confronted by this because death is a reality. Uh, maybe you've not thought about this before, but you will die. Uh, if Jesus doesn't come back before it, you will die. There will be a day. Uh, whenever I go to a funeral, I, I say that to people, there will be a day when you will be the one that people are mourning. And you pray that you'll have family and friends there that actually do mourn you on that day. One day we'll all die. What price to avoid death? What price would you pay? Now, there's three pictures of death in, in John 11 that I want to sort of draw out because each of them tells a story about what we'd trade, uh, sort of battling the world's view of death and life versus, well, God's view, which resets death and life for us. So, we're going to dig into it. Have your Bibles open. It's a big chapter, you notice, as we read all the way through it. Uh, the first picture, it connects death with glory. Now, this is very common. Uh, we do this all the time. The man who died saving the 12 was a hero. Uh, we glorify him. We say, he is a hero. That's what we do. If you're prepared to die for someone, you're a hero. But the glory now in Lazarus's story is different. Uh, this glory is about God. This glory is about Jesus, the Lord of the universe. So, so let's have a look at the story. There's this family, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. Now, we haven't met them yet. The, the chapter even presumes that we've read on to chapter 12, where we will meet them a little bit later. If you've read the Gospels, you know about this family. Uh, Mary and Martha get mentioned on a number of occasions, and when their brother Lazarus becomes sick, they know where to turn. They know Jesus, they met Jesus, He came past their house in Bethany, just near Jerusalem, over and over again, they can turn to Jesus. So, Jesus gets an email or a text or whatever it is, 2,000 years ago, somehow the message gets sent to Him, and here's His response in verse 4. He says... This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we know how the Son of God can be glorified, because we've seen this all before in John's Gospel. We've met the amazing Jesus. Uh, what could Jesus do? Well, Jesus could redo the miracle of chapter 4. Remember that? Just at His word, remote healing. Centurion's official son, healed, just like that. If He doesn't want to do it that way, well, He can do the blind man option. He can providentially be at the right place, at the right time, and He can heal Lazarus to show His glory. And that's what we expect Him to do. What we don't expect Him to do is what He actually does. As we read on in verse 6, uh, He doesn't heal him, He doesn't go, He stays two more days. What are you doing, Jesus? 
What are you doing, Jesus? There are people that will mourn this man if he dies. There, there is sadness to come. Lazarus will be dead. There's no coming back. Go, Jesus. Heal, Jesus. What are you doing? From our point of view, we're, we're thinking, I don't understand. If I had Jesus' power, I would make this right. But of course, Jesus has more to offer in what is going on. He's saying to us and our complaints, stick with me. This is very important, this story of Lazarus. The disciples, they too have their objections. They're a little bit different to our objections. They're thinking, and you see it in verse 8, we were just up in Jerusalem. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. We just about got killed in Jerusalem. Thank God this sickness will not end in death. We don't have to go. He doesn't need us to come visit him on his sickbed. He'll be fine. A little bit later, Jesus says, he's sleeping. Lazarus is sleeping. And again, they go, great news. Lazarus is fine. Let's stay here where it's safe. Their concerns are for things of this world, their own life. Again, Jesus has to point out God's perspective. Jesus says with a little illustration in verse 9, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Now, we know there's not 12 hours in a day. He means 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark. And you'll say, well, that's not scientific. And I'll say, well, Jesus knows more science than you. It's an illustration, okay? <laughs> Just follow him with it. Smart people walk in the light. Smart people don't stumble around in the darkness. They use the time of day when they have the light with them to do all they need to get done. But of course, he says there, you have the light of the world, do the good things. Well, who is the light of the world? We just discovered who that is. Jesus is the light of the world. The disciples actually have the light of the world with them. Here they are worried about stumbling around, going up to Jerusalem where they might die. Here they are worried about Lazarus and whether they have to visit him or not. And Jesus is saying, when you have the light of the world with you, you can see. You don't have to worry. You're in the light and here I am. He's trying to get them to take the bigger perspective and to continue to trust him more and more each day. Don't worry about Lazarus. They're still focused on Lazarus. Well, you said he's fallen asleep. Let's stay. And Jesus has to make it very explicit in verse 15. Lazarus is dead. It doesn't say Jesus rolled his eyes, but you kind of think he would have. Of course, that's what he's talking about. But then he says, verse 15, I'm glad for you disciples that I wasn't there so that you may believe. See, what this story is about is about belief. In fact, all of John's gospel is about belief. Believe in Jesus. Now, the disciples, you could say they do believe in Jesus. But actually, they're just growing in their belief in Jesus. They need to learn to really trust him even with their lives, even with their doubts. And I think we see here a little example of them beginning to do that. Uh, you know, doubting Thomas from the end of John's Gospel? We meet him here, but he's not doubting Thomas. Look what he is, he's Stoic Thomas. Verse 16, Jesus says, we're going to go. And Stoic Thomas says, let's go so we may die with him. Thomas is starting to get it. I'm going to trust Jesus. He thinks he's going to die, but at least he's going to go, he's going to trust his life to Jesus. And so off they go to Bethany, the disciples and Jesus, the lot of them. And it says there, they arrive four days late. Turns out the two days don't matter either way. Lazarus has passed away. Uh, four days late, Lazarus is truly dead. Uh, Lazarus has begun to smell, to decompose. He is a dead man. Uh, sister Martha, practical Martha, she says, Lord, verse 39, he's already decaying. 
That's the state of Lazarus at this point. There is nothing that can be done. But she's quick to point out, if you'd been here, verse 32, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know if she's trying to sort of stick a knife in and create a guilt trip or, or whether she's just saying, well, I know you could have done something, so, so why not? And she too will have to hold on and believe as the events unfold. Well, the next person we meet is Mary. Uh, Mary comes out crying. Uh, she drags the crowd with her as she's coming out crying and she meets Jesus. And it's at this point we get to Jesus' response. Uh, verse 35, you see it there, famously, Jesus wept. This is an amazing little verse, actually. Jesus wept. Uh, this is the Lord of the universe. We've known from John 1, this is the Lord of the universe. This is God in this world. Jesus wept. Jesus is moved by these events. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus is sad. He understands the pain of humanity. He understands us. If you ever feel like the Lord of the universe doesn't understand you, he does. He's been amongst us. He knows. But his tears are actually running deeper than that. He does love Lazarus, but there is more to it as well. He knows the depths of this tragedy. See, Jesus knows that the reason death has come is because humans sinned. Humans turned their back on God. Jesus knows death is not right. Jesus knows that death is a broken world. Je Jesus knows it's not God's intention for us. And so he weeps for humanity that is facing death because we turned our back on God. Uh, death, when you think about it, it separates relationships. This is the very opposite of what God wanted. Humanity and God to walk together humanity to love one another and walk together. Death breaks relationship. It is right to cry with Jesus, to mourn, to be sad, because death wrecks everything. You know, people often say that, the grie that grieving is a process, it, it takes time to heal. There is truth in that. But it's also true, if you love someone and they pass away, you never really get over it. I think we know deep in ourselves, don't we? that relationship is important and that not getting to say another word to that person, not getting to end better, not getting to see them next Christmas, not, 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 is wrong. Relationship shouldn't be broken by death. That is wrong. That is not God's intention. We feel it and the pain that we feel is Jesus' tears when Jesus wept. Death wrecks everything. So I said, we, I think we have an economy of death as humans. We've kind of worked out we have to. But not Jesus. Death is wrong. It needs fixing. That's what Jesus thinks. It is wrong. When one person dies for 12, that is wrong. That's not a good thing. That's a wrong thing. He shouldn't have had to die. No one should have had to die. When someone dies at 3 or 103, that is sad. That is wrong. They shouldn't have to die like that. Death is wrong because it's come out of our rebellion against God. Jesus weeps about all of that. Now, some people watching on, they see Jesus crying and they go, well, wow, he loved Lazarus. But I hope you can see that's only part of it. That anger that it says in the passage, that is expressed in his tears as well. Anger at sin, anger at death itself. But in verse 37, others respond, I think, starting to ask the right questions. See in verse 37, some say, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he? He made him see. Why didn't he? 
what is going on here? He wants to know more. These people want to know more. Jesus must be able to do something. If they hold on a little bit longer, they will see something amazing. So Jesus continues his walk to the tomb, and we finally get there in verse 41. They take away the stone. It smells. It's horrible. Lazarus is dead. But Jesus stands outside. He raises his eyes to heaven, and he says to his father, Father, I thank you that you heard me. He doesn't need to say that. That could be personal between him and the Father, but he goes on. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth, and Jesus said, loose him, let him go. If you follow along in our series in John's Gospel, Jesus has repeatedly pointed out that He and the Father are one. And we see it right here, we're invited into a prayer with God. Jesus has God's power and authority. Jesus calls Lazarus from death to life. If you want to know God, you, you look at Jesus. He is the place where you see God clearest in all this world. This public prayer is so that they and we might know that. Look to Jesus, believe in Him and see God. Incredibly, Lazarus comes out, right? And in kids' church and kids' stories, we'll always sort of focus on the bandages and the kind of crazy mummy thing that's coming out and all that. That's just us imagining. I mean, it's exciting for the kids when you tell it with all that sort of thing. What I find is surprising that we don't find out anything more about Lazarus. Like if I wrote this, I'd be saying, well, then Lazarus cuddled his family and high-fived and ran around and jumped for joy and then he got invited onto, you know, TV talkback and he rang on the radio and said, guess what happened to me? And of course, he'd celebrate. This is great news. Nothing in all of history up to this point is as great a news as this. I was dead, now I'm alive. It doesn't say that Lazarus would become famous in popular culture either, does it? It doesn't mention what would happen to Lazarus. And when my Bulldogs finally win a game, I guarantee you the commentators will say, they're back from the dead, like Lazarus. But we don't mention all of that, it's just the end of the Lazarus story, because it's not the Lazarus story. It's the Jesus story. This story is about the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. Not the Lazarus story. Lazarus didn't save himself. Lazarus lived on, I don't know how long, 20 years, 30 years, who knows? He would have died again unless you've seen him wandering around, still alive, he would have died again, like he was brought back to life, but he lived and he died. In all of history, nothing as exciting for humanity has happened until that point. It's the kind of joy of the Thai soccer team by a thousand or by a million. How excited were we? The, the cameramen couldn't even hold the camera, they were so excited at some point. You can hear them sort of shaking as they sort of high-five people around, yay, they're out! Multiply that by a thousand, multiply it by a million, and that is the joy that a man came back from the dead. This is really what the story of John's Gospel is all about. The power of Jesus, the fact that He is worth believing in, that we might know He is the Saviour, the Son of God, the Messiah, and turn to Him. Now, I haven't been here for the entire series in John, but I trust that Troy and Kevin and Phil and everyone else has made sure every week they've said to you, if you don't believe in Jesus, John's Gospel says, turn to Him today. Believe in Jesus. That's the whole point of the Gospel. 
believe in Jesus, find eternal life. If you are someone sitting here going, oh, I've been checking out this Jesus fellow and still haven't turned, do it today. Go and talk to Troy, he's sitting up the back, he's wait, waiting for you to go and talk to him about Jesus. So you might trust the one who has authority and power over death itself. Well, sadly, even with that great example of a man coming back from the dead, not everybody saw Jesus clearly. In fact, the Pharisees, who had been following along all the way, very much didn't see Jesus clearly. So verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus did, they believed in him. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, they have a totally different take on Jesus. To them, Jesus' death would actually be for the greater good. They actually think it would be great for Jesus to die, it would solve a lot of problems. Have a look at their fear from verse 47. Uh, these Pharisees, these leaders, these religious people. What are we going to do since this man does signs? No dispute, this man does signs. Now, they don't believe him, they don't think it means he's the Son of God. Verse 48, if we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him, and not us. Not us and our leadership of the people. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. They, they lived in fear of Jesus. They thought people would believe in Him and the signs that He was doing and then they would see He's the Messiah and then they'd rise up against Rome and then they'd lose their temple and then it would be all over. That was their fear. So the high priest Caiaphas weighed in on it all. Verse 49, he says to them, you know nothing at all, you're idiots in modern translation. It's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. You see that? It's to your advantage that one man should die for the whole nation. This is a great ironic statement in John. He actually believed that. This is the tragedy of it. He believed that killing somebody would be better for the nation. He believed murder was okay. He believed death was okay. Contrast that to Jesus' leadership. He weeped at death. He was sad by death. He didn't go around murdering people, which is what this man says. It's a pragmatic solution. Kill Jesus, save our religion. Kill Jesus, save our leadership. And so from that moment on, verse 53, that's what they planned to do. They plotted it, to kill Jesus until they succeeded. Jesus, after this chapter, will withdraw. Uh, you'll have to wait till next year as we continue in the series in John. But they'll withdraw and Jesus will teach His disciples for the rest of the Gospel. What they all failed to understand, what Caiaphas misunderstood about his prophecy, God-given prophecy, was that God would use these things for good. In fact, God would use this to create two of history's greatest ironies, I think. Jesus' death did indeed unite the people of God, didn't it? Here you are. 2,000 years later, Jesus' death, they killed him and it united the people of God, created the church and we stand as testimony to that. And the very thing they hoped to avoid, that they would lose their temple and lose their place, fast forward 40 or so years, 70 AD, they lost their temple, they lost their city, Rome destroyed them, they've been wandering until modern times without their city. It's incredibly sad. And what's even worse is that they were prepared to have a pragmatic solution rather than trust God. They turned their back on their theology, their commandments, and were prepared to kill a man to get away with uh, their leadership. 
I want to say it's a good lesson for us. Uh, pragmatism in theology is on the rise all around us. I've been reading the newspaper a bit this week, I think I must have had more time on my hands for some reason or other, uh, and I read multiple arguments from people saying, I'm a Christian. And I'd read down through the argument, and then eventually they'd say, I'm a Christian who is committing this sin. And I think, therefore, the church should change what it thinks about this sin, because I'm a perfectly reasonable person, so that you'll welcome more people into the church. They'll all come in. Pragmatic solution. If churches are emptying, just, just, just open the doors. Preach a gospel of love, but never mention judgment. Preach a gospel of love, but never mention sin. There's a pragmatic solution for us all. You've read John's gospel. Will that work? No, not enough people are nodding their heads. No, it won't work. God sent His only Son to die for us so that we would not perish but have life. That's what works. Don't change your theology. Don't change the message. Don't go for a pragmatic solution to make the world happy with us. Stick to trusting God who can raise people from the dead. Let's get back to raising from the dead. Uh, the final part, the final heading today, it's really the most important uh, lesson for us all today. As I worked through Lazarus's story before, I left out a key conversation, and you would have seen, I skipped through the details. It was between Martha and Jesus. She went out to meet him, and I mentioned verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is an example of her trust, her belief in Jesus. But at first, it seems like Jesus just gives her the standard Jewish response. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. And she thinks of that as, yes, all of us Jews, all of us children of Abraham will rise again in the end and the resurrection will all be together and it will be wonderful. I'll see him then, but what comfort today. But Jesus was actually being much more specific, much more deliberate. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this is not a general statement. This is a very specific statement. He means all of that. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. And he explains what he means. Uh, Jesus is the resurrection. He's in the rest of verse 25. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Death as we know it, he's saying, is not the end. If you believe in Jesus, death, as we know it, is not the end. It's not true death. It's simply the end of a phase of life. This means as Christians, if we have the Lord who is the resurrection, we do not fear what everyone else fears. We do not live under the same economy of life and death that everyone else has. I put a couple of little verses into your outline today, uh, you'll see them in there. Uh, we can say with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Because death will not win. We have the resurrection, Jesus. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, if you're worried about those who have died in Christ, they're gone, what hope is there for them? We can say with Paul, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. Jesus is our resurrection from death. Death is not the end. 
And then verse 26 explains what life is. Everyone who lives and believes in Jesus will never die, ever. True life, life to the full, what God wants for His people will not end. It it is not what we think of as life. Uh, It's not your average Australian life. You know, the average Australian life is 83 years. That's our average. If you want to live longer, you can move to Canberra and be female. And if you can do that, then you can live for 84 and a half years on average. Of course, you have to move to Canberra. Canberra's minus five. I like Canberra. It's minus five degrees this morning. That, that is not the life that Jesus is talking about. That's not true life. Uh, true life is when you believe in Jesus and live with Him forevermore. On and on and on. If I use my hand gestures, I have to keep going. Forever, I have to keep going forevermore. That is true life. True life does not end. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life forevermore. And it's life to the full. We've called this series Life to the Full because it's not just an empty life. You don't just get raised back like Lazarus and live a bit longer. You don't just get raised to live forever but have a boring life or something. You live with the Lord of the universe. You enjoy His glory forever. Jesus turns to Martha and He says, Do you believe this? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus is your resurrection and your life. I think if we believe it, then how much more do we have than those Thai soccer boys? Those Thai soccer boys have been giving a second chance at life and the, the world rejoiced. But you think about their situation. Surely none of those guys can ever have the same life again that they've had before. How could they ever get sick of talking about their saviours? All these people that came, the man that died, how could they ever stop talking about those people that did so much for them? And the Thai soccer boys, how will they ever take life for granted? Because they knew what death was like. They were right there on the edge and then they got life. You saw the pictures in hospital, they're high-fiving each other and they're waving their selfie photos and all sorts of things. They're so excited. And the Thai boys will never have an identity separate from what has happened when they were saved. Now, those boys, in 50 years' time, if you're, you live long enough to see it, they'll be on TV shows where they say, where are they now? Those Thai soccer boys that were saved. Where are They are defined by this moment. This is their new life. This is who they are. How much more do we have? We've been saved by a Saviour who saves us forever. Who gives us new life? How can we not tell of that Saviour? My Saviour saves me forever. Not just like Lazarus, 20 years, or the Thai boys, 50 or 60 years. Forever. How much more do we praise God for this new life we have? It's not the same as our old life. How much more is our life for something we'd seek to reform to be like Jesus' life? How much more is our life turning our back on the old ways? How much more is our life changing priorities to match with where we're going rather than where we've been? How much more is our life treasuring the very words of the one who saved us? And how much more should we define ourselves by our Saviour? Who are we? We're Christians. We're Christ's servants. We are soldiers of the gospel. We are members of the kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are holders of the very message of eternal life. That's what we have. 
If you trust Jesus, that is what you have. We Christians, we have it all. Like we have so much. The world's economy of life and death doesn't even make sense to us, I hope. Because everything pales in the comparison of what we have now. As we get to the end of John's Gospel, I hope you can't walk away from this being the same. We always pray that God will change us through His Word. But how can we see this life we have, that we've been bought into, and just live like we used to? How can that be? Jesus has bought us eternal life, and we've started it now. In fact, we have started it now. If you're a Christian, you already started. Your physical death is like a speed bump. Hopefully, Jesus will come back before you have to face that, but if He doesn't, it's a speed bump. You'll have a continuity between being in relationship and living with Jesus now and forevermore with this little speed bump of death. How can we see life and death like we did before? I want to challenge you to walk out of here tonight and think, I do have a new life. I have it all. I have the greatest gift, so much more than those Thai boys. If you rejoiced at that, rejoice at what you have in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son. We praise you that he came to reveal you into this world. We praise you that he cares about death and sin and our lost state. And we want to honour and glorify you that you've provided the solution. Please help every single one of us to trust Jesus and to live out the new life, eternal life with him forevermore.